0: Welcome back to Olympic Size, the unofficial, unlicensed, unaffiliated with the IOC, true history of the Olympics. I am your host, Bridget Natalie, and with me, as ever, is my co-host, Sarah, and our recurring guest, Frank Costello. Thank
1: you for having me. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> always a pleasure to have you, Frank, um, especially after you had your epic wrestling match with the, the three-year-old <laughs> in we, It
1: was to a draw.
0: It was to a draw. <laughs> That's respectable. He then taught Frank the subtle art of jump hugs. Hmm. Which... That doesn't sound subtle. It's, it's not. Extremely um,
1: similar to tackling.
0: <laughs> except it's with love. And I didn't get a uh, shoulder in the throat this time, so it was really a... Extremely
1: a, a similar to tackling. A
0: step up from other times I've endured this. Anyway...
1: So when are they putting a jump hug into an Olympic sport?
0: Uh, you know, when my kid starts, is he can lobby for it. He, he'll be ready to go, given a couple of years. I read that there's actually, like, the, um, the American Olympic Committee is concerned because there's the number of kids between the ages of 8 and 14 who are quitting sports now means that down the road, we won't have as strong a field for Olympic sports. Hmm. And they, their recommendation is to chill out and not make them so competitive so early and so expensive so early because the kids burn out and they quit. That's what the Olympic Committee is saying to the, these parents <laughs> so, have, and organizations. Has, and that the,
1: works? Yeah, has the Olympic Committee met parents of kids who play sports? This Isn't is
0: the Olympic not... Committee who deals with Olympic athletes yeah, all right. the time, who are have, like, you guys need to chill. Have the
2: Olympic... Committee been to a T ball game <laughs> recently. Junior League hockey? That's where I learned all the swear words that I know. <laughs> it's from parents at my T ball games.
0: Anyway. Fun fact.
2: All but of that the swe- was, all a- of the you sp- know, a lot of swear words.
0: <laughs> that was not the case in 1924. We're back to <laughs> Paris in 1924 is where we're gonna start. It's the Summer Games that year. We, last time we did the, win, the first Winter Games, which were in shamanics France, and at the time they were considered part of these games, but it, retroactively they split them up. So, these are the Summer Games. Um,
1: and in the first Winter Games, they did not have Skeleton, as I recall.
0: No. So they the have Skeleton
1: age. must be in these games.
0: No. <laughs> there's no. There's no Winter Sports in these games. Um, as we mentioned guilt
1: is a staple Winter
2: Olympic sport I'm getting a look no that is I am agreeing with you yeah. I want the winter sports back
0: okay want we, well, you you're getting a big bit about equestrian
2: I I'm placated okay
0: there's uh, some winter co- sucks there was there is some controversy about the equestrian so we'll get there <gasps> there's an excerpt to read I believe. what horse people were mad It was actually with legit reason so we'll get there um did they finally give the horses guns no no guns for the horses. As we mentioned, them? in there was there is a guy who gets shot, all right? A little spoiler there. Somebody gets shot in these games. As we mentioned <laughs> yes. in the last episode about the 1924 Olympics, the IOC produced a com- comprehensive report of all of the 1921 games, winter and summer, but only in French and as far as I could find, it has never been translated. I didn't find the French version online in a PDF that I couldn't even like run through Google Translate and get like some idea of what they were talking about. So, again, I'm cobbling this together from internet sources, mostly Wikipedia, and a couple of books, which we have here, The Games, A Global History of the Olympics by David Goldblatt, and The Olympics' Strangest Moments, uh, Extraordinary But True Tales from the History of the Olympic Games by Jeff Tibbles, and we'll be using these a lot as the series goes on. Um, Frank's holding it up like Vanna White. All right. There were a number of countries interested in hosting, but the French were actually, actually wanted it this time and managed to beat out the other applicants, including Amsterdam, Barcelona, Los Angeles, Prague, and Rome. I think have all hosted it at least once since then.
1: What uh, was the turning point on getting people to want these games? Because it hasn't been that long since we couldn't afford it or boxing wasn't allowed or whatever the that was excuses Stockholm. were.
0: Yeah, I... I mean I really think it was World War One. And then but then immediately after was Amsterdam not Amsterdam. It was in Belgium and they were like, We really aren't ready for this. Right. But they were like, No, you have to have it
1: <laughs> So as soon as we're back from war with enough of a breather to rebuild some economies it's we want the games back. Yeah, we want to be it, on the world stage.
0: Yeah, and I think because at this point, like, it becomes a prestige thing when a lot of these empires are crumbling and there aren't as many opportunities to get that prestige. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the Olympics themselves were growing in kind of consciousness and and respect, and they weren't just like this weird dude's weird hobby. Um, However, some problems in France, including an international crisis following the French occupation of the Ruhr in 1923 and flooding in Paris that winter, led to de Coubertin making discreet inquiries to Los Angeles to see if they could fill in at the last minute.
1: <laughs> Fortunately for all involved, that did not happen.
0: Yeah, uh, Yeah, that didn't happen. Paris got their act together. A couple firsts at these Olympics, it was the first time there was an Olympic village for the athletes. Uh, a, they, like, uh, the Greeks had, like, uh, dorms or whatever, but right. the, this was, like... Uh, Where did people stay before On them? their yachts.
2: Oh, uh,
0: there, yeah, there were the guys who stayed on the yachts um, in Greece, I think it was. Uh, but there also, they just get, like, places at hotels around, mostly. But Bed and the,
2: breakfast. I guess it wasn't, like, a huge (laughs) to-do. It
0: wasn't, yeah. But this, I mean, we'll get into how many people were there. Um, They built cabins near the stadium to house visiting athletes. This was, like, the first time they did that. Um, In Athens, they had them all, like, in a big dormitory-style place, but that wasn't built for it, and it wasn't really, like, like it is now, like, apartments and stuff. Um, Yeah. Uh, This was all the first time that the Olympic motto, Sidious Altius Fortius, was adopted, which is faster, higher, stronger. Um, Paris was much more interested in actually hosting the Olympics this time around and spent approximately 10 million francs to do it. The total they took in was about 5,496,610 francs for a significant loss, despite the fact that there were healthy crowds reaching 60,000 at times.
1: Now, is that a loss in... um like box office accounting, where actually it's fine, or did they really lose five million dollars to get the prestige? Well,
0: francs. So I'm not really sure what the. Ex- I have no idea what the French exchange rates. Yeah, French dollars. Um. No, I, they lost money. The very, very few places actually turn a profit on the Olympics. I think.
2: Has it ever happened?
0: Los Angeles managed to. Oh, well, they didn't have to build
2: anything, that's, right? Yeah, that's
0: the thing if you don't have to build anything you can actually make a profit off of the Olympics but there are very few places that have enough uh, it's facilities. just Los Angeles it's just <laughs> Los Angeles basically and
1: everywhere that is previously hosted in Olympics at this point should no, in theory they, be able to reduce. they don't
0: keep stuff
2: up it would cost money and yeah. you don't need to like they're not maintaining that stadium they built in the middle of the Amazon that's Probably burning to the ground as we speak.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, most of those places are, um, well, they're out of date by the time the Olympics come back because it'll go decades in between. Mm-hmm. I mean, places don't host them that frequently together. That's a fair point. There's that one stadium in Greece that's like several thousand years old and it's carved out of marble that they'll use, but that's uh, special. <laughs> like-
1: so, what I'm hearing is if we built every new stadium out of marble, they would maintain Maybe. their ability to be in Yeah, use. because you just
0: gotta polish it up and fill in the cracks. Yeah. It, it yeah. really doesn't take much once you... Because that was the one that was filled in and was like a goat field and then they found it and they were like, oh, we should dig this. Oh, this is nice. <laughs> polish it up.
2: <laughs> we, we might keep this. Yeah. Uh,
0: but yeah, um but yeah other than that and then like the stuff they just have in los angeles most places and most places don't have the kind of sports culture we do like they'll have the big soccer stadium but that's about it you mean football no in other countries is what i'm saying i like,
2: really don't understand why yeah, they do like an international coalition of olympics sorry this is not <laughs> the hour where i explain my grand new vision for the olympics Would <laughs> it be kind of cool to host it like where you know in every different country where there were, like, actual stadiums already. I'll just, I'll be over here.
0: Yeah, it, it would be. if we weren't wasting money on these all the time. That would and, be like, great, too. Yeah, ruining economies and uh, enslaving but, people or whatever terrible things they do. But the joy of amateur sportsmanship. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what's it called? The spectacle of it all. The horsies. So the main stadium that they used was something that already existed, so they didn't waste money on building a new one. Of those, at least, it was the Stade Olympique Yves Du Manoir, or Stade Olympique de Colombe, or to the locals, just Colomb. Um, The name roughly translate roughly translated means the Olympic Stadium, and then conveniently
1: what, yes, already named,
0: <laughs> and then whatever location you're assigning it to. So it's like the Olympic Stadium of Colombe, or Yves Du Manoir, whatever but they usually just call it Colum. Uh, the place was built in 1907, not for an Olympics, and was mainly used for rugby. So the name was mostly serendipity for these games. It had a capacity of 45,000 at the time. Uh, there were 44 nations represented these games and a thousand journalists reporting on them. The Olympics were really coming into their own as a cultural event. For all that Belgium struggled with the 1920 Games, it represented optimism and camaraderie in a world that desperately needed them, and in 1924 that interest only grew. Of particular interest to us, this was the first time that Ireland was recognized as one of those 44 independent nations participating in these Games. Uh, they were ready for this, having formed the Olympic Federation of Ireland, OFI, in 1922, which preceded, preceded the formation of the official Irish Free State. <laughs> You just got it's.
1: That's the prep work. When you're doing a project, you get a bunch of your ducks in a row yeah. before you kind of come out with <laughs> the, the reveal.
0: While you're so part of like the United Kingdom, you are yeah. like, okay, but we're gonna have our own Olympic committee. Uh, the Irish Free State existed from 1922 to 1937, and later transitioned to the Republic of Ireland, which is still in existence today. I don't know what the difference is. Like, <laughs> it's beyond the scope of this podcast. This, <laughs> this, I, I try to limit the number of rabbit holes I go down. <laughs> This was the culmination of a rebellion that started off in 1916 with the Easter Uprising, leading to a treaty that was signed in 1921 and ratified in 1922, so Irish independence was still very new, and the IOC officially recognizing it was a significant act. Uh,
1: Had that been worked out ahead of time, since they had the committee ahead of time?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was 22 and this is 24, so... Yeah.
1: But, like, can you have, like, a backroom deal with the IOC where it's like, hey, when we become a nation state,
0: if anybody, you need
2: to jump on this.
0: If anybody did, I doubt it was the Irish. Yeah. <laughs> like,
2: they, were, they were working some stuff out yeah. for some time afterwards.
0: Other nations making their Olympic debuts included China, Ecuador, Haiti, Lithuania, Uruguay, and the Philippines. Latvia and Poland made their summer Olympic debut, having already sent athletes to the Winter Games in shamanics. Or Chimony, Which at the time
1: would have been the same debut as far as they knew.
0: Yeah, as far as they knew, yeah. As we mentioned in the last episode, all the central powers that had been banned from the 1920 games were allowed to return with the exception of Germany. So Austria, Hungary, and Turkey were all represented, and the exclusion of the Germans certainly did nothing to fuel the messed up psychology that eventually led to massive trouble for most of mankind in about ten years. <laughs> it's fine. Uh... There were 3,089 athletes competing in these games, 135 of which were women, in 126 events. So we've almost reached the point where we have as many women competing as total athletes in 1896, which was 241.
1: That's going to be quite the milestone. Are we going to throw a party?
0: (laughs) We'll we'll drink some, like, pink champagne. That's the
1: point where it's like, we can have our own
0: Olympics. (laughs) Um... We've officially passed the event horizon in which I can go through each and every sport and give results, so we're going to focus on highlights, upsets, significant performances, controversies, weird stories, and, you know, things of interest. One thing that the IOC was trying to get in front of in these games was controversies over judging and they had mixed results, which they will always have, uh, because a not insignificant number of them were legitimate complaints of biases. And if the Olympics were going to continue to grow in terms of participation and prestige and ever approach the ideal of like, you know, pure sport and, and dissolution of like, you know, the importance of political boundaries and whatnot, um... They had to have a level playing field in terms of what the rules are and make sure everybody understood what the rules were before they showed up. Essentially, they needed a standard. This action was being forced in part by major contributors to the Olympic movement, like Great Britain, debating whether or not to participate at all after the catastrophes like the 1920 soccer finals shook their faith in the ability for the Olympics officials to conduct these events fairly.
1: Did the ISO exist by this point, or is that still pending feature development
0: um fifa exists at this point mm, i don't
1: trust fifa this is mm, the iso no i why don't
0: why ever not
1: the corruption
0: oh yeah why is, ever not? <laughs> <laughs> the standards were to be set by the international federations that govern each sport so i don't think there's an overall one right. um so fifa is an example of this so sports that had no international governing federation such as archery were trimmed from the program they as, yeah there's no archery this time uh, there wasn't going to be archery for a while. Um, they also got rid of some other fringe sports like tug-of-war, the 56-pound weight-throwing competition. tug-of-war
1: had set simple rules. you <laughs> could complain about it?
0: And they officially booted golf forever. A few others made the cut, like polo, tennis, and rugby union, but after 1924 would not be returning due to their, quote, limited geographical reach. Tennis and rugby in a... Form have come back. Uh, I don't think Polo's ever come back. Uh, we'll get to how successful these efforts to combat unfair judging turned out to be in these games. Like I said, mixed bag. Uh, these games also marked a considerable advance for technology in that they were the first games to be broadcast live on the radio. Instead of waiting for the daily or weekly cycling newspaper to announce the results of whatever races one was interested in, you could now listen as it happened. An incredible advance for the sports spectating journalism and the popular profile of the Olympics, leading to that increase in the number of journalists present. As well as film. There's film strips of this one.
1: Ooh, can we put that in, like, put it in post, drop it into the podcast feed?
0: Uh, we could, I don't, I can't really. They're f- silent film. <laughs> so, uh, and actually, I was like, I was watching the film, like, the actual footage is cool, but then if you listen to it, they add, like, weird soundtracks to it, and I.
2: Is it all Chariots of Fire? No. I'm but imagining the little, like, carnival
1: music that goes with that horse not, running though, rotoscope
0: thing. It, it's not. It's, like, modern, like, mood music. I, I really Smooth hate jazz. it. Yeah. Is
1: it, like, hell yeah. I
0: really hate it.
1: Like, the dumb, generic. Piano they put at the end of the.
0: It's not even piano, piano. It's like synth. It is synth. Oh. Yeah, it's really mismatched. So yeah, but it choice. is cool that you can see the film of this. And I'll, I'll, IOC has a lot of these. And I uh, are they uh, I public they're domain? Host, yeah, they're, I, I think they're hosted. We can make our time. own
1: version with better music. That's true. We can drop in whatever. It's all we want. chariots of fire. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I don't think chariots
0: Thrash of fire is public domain.
2: <laughs> that's <laughs> oh. that's that's gonna be a road bump.
0: But. Guess what happened in 1924? Is the what Chariots of Fire* was based on. Um, anyway, I'll be putting wait, I'll, I, I'll be putting these videos on our on our Twitter that like nobody's following. So if you want to see any of these film strips, I'll, I'll put them up on our Twitter and this is, our
2: TikTok. Is like, just accidentally topical? I'm ignoring.
0: You that were account. very topical. Okay, we're going to talk about the art competition uh, because this is like a weird little side thing. I'm sorry,
2: yeah. <laughs> so don't worry,
1: we've gotten rid of all the subjective bias from our events, uh-huh. and also there's an art
0: competition. No, I mean there's still subjectively scored sports. There's still like gymnastics and stuff.
1: All quantitative, biasless, <laughs>
0: <laughs> pure yeah, <a> scientific. <laughs> Uh, But yeah, but the point is that everybody knows like what so it's like if it's judged by a rubric Everybody knows what the rubric is going in and then like what the standards are going in in an attempt to make it More fair and not just like well I'm French So I'm scoring all the French guys like 12 and the rest of you can go screw.
1: Did they have a rubric for the art?
0: I am guessing I don't know what it was all right We're not gonna talk about every single one. This was the first time the arts competition was taken seriously because
1: DeKubert- of the rumors, did it before? Yeah, they, they didn't did. not Remember,
0: Decubertin had tried to make this a thing earlier. But it was it,
1: with the embezzlement.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then he like won under a pen name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It had been an uphill battle and abandoned after 1900. This time he didn't even get he didn't even have to enter his own piece enter his own pieces under a pseudonym to get decent competition. The categories were architecture, literature, music, painting, and sculpture. The judges were recruited by the French Academy of Fine Arts from across Europe and represented some of the best of the best of the arts at the time. You might actually recognize some of these names. Uh, judges included literary giants like the Swedish and Belgian Nobel laureates, Selma Lagerloff and Maurice Materlink, and Italian proto-fascist polymath Gabriele D'Annunzio. Also on the judging panel were composers Igor Stravinsky, Bella Bartok, and Maurice Gravel. So, if you guys ever studied classical music, you would recommend I Stravinsky's right. is yeah. a very well-known Yeah, Stravinsky, that's that Stravinsky. Yeah.
2: Like, but, but, like, did they conduct a symphony in a competition? They were judges. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> I'm misunderstanding <laughs> what's happening now. All right, so
0: I'm not exactly sure how the medals were judged, but I do know that there were two categories that had no gold medalists and one in which nobody was awarded a medal. So...
2: <laughs> so... Oof. Yeah. Wait, so they were they were going to, and then they were like, "We've decided none of none you of you are the this. best." Yes, <laughs> incredible. Word. Yes,
0: uh, nobody won anything for music, probably because it the was best Stravinsky, song. Yeah.
2: Bartok, and Ravel.
0: Yeah, were they were him. like the,
1: the best you people. Song. The best song here is the pure silence of
2: you all getting out of my face. <laughs> oh, <laughs> devastating.
0: Um,
2: but what happened? Apparently. Yeah.
0: Nobody won anything for music, and nobody won gold for architecture. The judges from the music competition took their tasks so seriously that they felt none of the entries warranted a medal of any sort.
2: (laughs) That is incredible. I love love the idea of them just getting in a room and shaking each other's hands and being like, well, all of those children (laughs) suck. These amateurs. (laughs) Literally amateurs. (laughs) Boys, we've still got it. (laughs) No one's coming for us.
0: Uh, Alfred Hajos and Dejo Lauber won silver for architecture for their plan for a stadium.
2: So they awarded silver. They were just like, you just don't deserve gold. Yeah, and You were the second best building that we've seen a plan for.
0: We haven't seen Second
2: to no one. <laughs> yeah. By the way. We but, gave but, the award but, to no one. But, but, the best yeah. would be to build. <laughs> we
0: say second yes. to none, but they but, but not, not in as, a good way. Yeah.
2: Not in a good way at all.
0: <laughs> not as in you won, as in
1: Nothing was better. Is, but not in the good way.
0: <laughs> that is
2: worse than just not getting not medaling. Like it? that's worse. Mm-hmm. Being like, we you we've decided you're the best in this competition, but you are are not good enough to get what we were originally going to award you. We had to come up with a new prize. You're and it sucks. You're place. not bad, you're just not as good as nothing. <laughs> That's our imaginary idea of what we would have hoped someone this, would enter in this contest. This
1: open field was not improved by your construction of your Jeez. stadium. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm just imagining, like, I don't know, figure skating or something. And the judges are like, um, we've made a decision. None of you won gold. <laughs> But we'll give you silver. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I, there'd be a riot in the streets.
0: Well, you wouldn't do
1: it to the figure stagers because they've got knives on hand.
0: Or, <laughs> or on feet,
1: as it were. But.
0: All right, anyway. Uh, back to uh, the third place out of two for <laughs> architecture. Jeez. Was Julian Medison of Monaco won bronze for his plan for a stadium for Monte Carlo. There were a lot of medals awarded in literature. Gold only had one winner, Joe Charles, aka Charles-Louis Proper-Goyot of France for his work titled Joe Olympics. This overachievement piece was a stage play that combined sport, dance, poetry, and music.
2: That's what you gotta do to get gold. (laughs) We wanna see
1: it all. Did the performers also get a copy of the medal?
0: (laughs) No, I have no idea. Um, jo- Joseph Peterson, Danish novelist, and Margaret Stewart, British poet, tied for silver for their pieces Uriel and Sword Songs, rep- respectively. I think Sword Songs sounds totally cool. Uh, and for bronze, the winners were Charles Gonnet of France for his poem "Ver de Le de l'Empire, and Oliver Gogarty of Ireland for his poem Ode to the Telltian Games. <laughs>
1: I'm curious, did the amateur rule actually apply to the arts competition? Yeah, so that's why of, if,
0: Stravinsky didn't if enter If any it. of these people
1: had ever been published, they're out.
0: No, you can be published and still an amateur. It depends on how much you get paid for it. Oh, uh, I see. Uh, John Jacobi won Luxembourg's first official gold medal, because remember the marathon runner in 1901. Turns out he was from Luxembourg, but they won't recognize that. Uh, first official gold medal in painting with his triptych titled Corner, Depart, and Rugby. Uh, Jack? He did a painting about sports? Yeah. they all. These are all sports Oh, it all has
2: to be sports.
0: Yeah. It's an Olymp- it's the Olympic arts competition.
2: Oh, I'm... Please continue. <laughs> uh,
0: Jack Butler Yates, younger brother of William, won silver for his painting The Liffey Swim and Johan van Hell won bronze for his painting Patineurs.
1: What a good name.
0: Yeats was greeted by the Irish press with all the journalistic fervor that other nations reserved for gold medal athletes. <laughs> Sculpture had one gold medalist and one silver medalist, Konstantinos uh, Dimitriades of Greece for his piece Disco Bowl Finlandice, and France... Heldenstein of Luxembourg for Vers The bronze was a tie with Claude Leon Musco of France for his sports medals and Jean Rene Gauguin of Denmark for his sculpture of a boxer. Imagine if they
1: had given out a gold medal and a bronze medal and (laughs) skipped silver. Is that worse than not giving anyone gold?
0: (laughs) That bronze medalist is like,
1: what the the hell, man?
0: Alright, so the next few events are... I'm calling them the not much events just because I couldn't find much on them. Um, which isn't to say that there weren't anything interesting about them. It's just that none of my sources... No one read
2: any of, of it down.
0: Yeah. Or at least not where that I could find it. Uh, gymnastics. You just need
1: to go to space, to wherever those radio waves are yeah. out in <laughs> space. from. Yeah,
0: but it's all in French. I can't understand. Wow. Wow. Well, well. uh, the the, the well, only French other French. language I speak is German, and they weren't there. They weren't <laughs> reporting on it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh yeah alright gymnastics I couldn't get a lot of information about the 1924 gymnastics competition at all it was only for men they didn't have the mass everybody get on the floor style competitions of past Olympics for the results lists, it sounded like the events themselves were close to what we do now I have no idea how these things were scored the websites listed on the Wikipedia entries were the IOC website which was just lists the medal tables and the official report which is only in French and some article that's only in Polish which is even less useful. I can't even read the alphabet they use. (laughs) There were 72 gymnasts from nine nations competing. Czechoslovakia, Finland, France, Great Britain, Italy, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and the United States, and Yugoslavia were all represented.
1: Interestingly, not Poland.
0: No, Poland, yeah. They were one of (laughs) the only articles about (laughs) it. (laughs) The only ones I could find about it. Again, uh, Czechoslovakia was the big winner with nine medals, then Switzerland with seven France with six, Italy with three, Yugoslavia with two, and the United States with one. Uh, So, good year for the Czechs and the Slovaks. Uh, Modern pentathlon was the same as in earlier years, the format being competitions in fencing, swimming, equestrian, shooting, and a foot race. The fencing portion being an epee round-robin tournament. The equestrian portion is show jumping on a horse randomly assigned 20 minutes before the competition, so you don't know the horse. Is that how a
1: horse sports work?
0: No. It is in modern pentathlon, which is supposed to mimic what an officer does on the field, where you just get a horse and goes what, what is they were trying to do. Is that how horse wars work? <laughs> we don't do horse wars anymore, so who knows? <laughs> it sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they get their horse randomly assigned 20 minutes for the competition. A pistol shooting competition, 300 miles freestyle swimming race, and a 4-kilometer cross-country race. 38 athletes from 11 nations participated. Sweden swept the medals again. Uh, the gold medalist Bo Lindemann would return in 1928, 1932, and 1936, leading the Swedish team in the Parade of Nations as a flag bearer in the subsequent Olympics. Polo. There's, there's almost nothing on Wikipedia about the polo tournament at the 1924 Games other than it happened for the last time, which is like, yeah, you can give me a little swan song story here. Uh, five nations fielded teams, Argentina, Great Britain, France, Spain, and the United States. Great Britain won the bronze, the U.S. silver, and Argentina won gold. This was Argentina's first appearance in the Olympics and their first gold medal.
1: One for one. Retire yeah. now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Well, they won some more medals, these Olympics. Uh, Weightlifting. There were five classes in weightlifting. Featherweight, 60 kilograms. Lightweight, 67.5 kilograms. Middleweight, 75 kilograms. Light heavyweight, which is 82.5 kilograms. And heavyweight, 82.5 kilograms and up. Only men participated. There were 16 nations represented by 107 athletes. This event went to the Italians, who won three medals, all golds. France did well with two medals, both golds. Austria won four medals, but they were three silvers and one bronze, so that's considered not as good as what France and Italy did. Estonia won three medals, Switzerland two, and Czechoslovakia won one. There were seven rowing events at the 1924 Olympics, all for men only. Single skulls, double skulls, coxless pairs, coxed pairs, coxless fours, coxed fours, and eights, which are coxed. But Are we done it, with the jokes? No, never. <laughs> okay. But it, no, what I my actual
1: that. question was since this is in the like no interesting anecdotes section, we don't know anything about random boys picked off the no, street to they didn't participate. Do
0: that. Yeah. yeah, I always
2: gotta ask about the boys. Gotta no ask about boys. The boys. How,
0: they, how they don't those let the street urchins? They don't. They don't let the street urchins just. I jump know on that the boat. they still had
1: them in 1920s Paris. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, they did. They were still street urchins. They were
0: there, but yeah, they weren't allowed to. They compete. weren't allowed to compete. It's
1: hard times for the street urchins.
0: 14 nations sent a total of 181 rowers The US and Switzerland won the medal race Tying with 5 each France won 3 Great Britain, Canada and Italy all won 2 And the Netherlands won 1 The big story was returning Olympic champion Jack Kelly Father of Grace Kelly uh, Earning his third and final gold medal in Coxless Pairs Becoming the first rower to win 3 Olympic gold medals Something that's still rare This coupled with his good looks Made him one of the most famous athletes of his time so now we're on to corruption and poor officiating. <laughs>
1: yes, finally the good stuff.
0: <laughs> Moving on to Messiaen. There wasn't poor
2: officiating when they didn't like like That award was incredibly, incredibly
1: intentional and well-executed officiating. Yeah. You got to like,
0: argue with like Ravel and Stravinsky that I, I, I kind of get... want
1: to. I'm like furious about this. Like someone <laughs> must be the best terrible composer here, right? Like
0: best of the worst. <laughs> like okay moving on to events that we know more about and our first category being the controversial ones corruption poor organization and rowdy crowds made for some wild or even dangerous events for competitors in these sports rugby who was under a cloud from the time the athletes started showing up in france for some reason the rugby event was held months before all the other sports the tournament taking place in may from the 4th through the 18th almost every other event was held in july Three nations compete in the tournament, France, Romania, and the United States. You remember from the Antwerp episode, the Americans were the returning champions. France was still annoyed about the unexpected defeat and were absolutely confident in the weeks leading up to this tournament that European champion France would easily steamroll over Romania and America and reclaim their rightful place as Olympic rugby champion. According to the American team member Norman Cleveland, they were looking for a punching bag, We were told to go to Paris and take our beatings like gentlemen. (laughs) Are you allowed to punch in rugby? I'm not familiar with the rules. Uh, I mean, nobody can see what you're doing in the scrum. That's fair. Uh, The American team were a ragtag bunch. Seven were returning members of the 1920 team. The other 15 were college football players who had never touched a rugby ball before they started training a few months before the games. They trained in Oakland, California with coach Charlie Austin, who hoped that they would make up for the lack in ability with sheer brute force.
1: Hmm. If you're going to pick a sport to try to do that in, rugby Rugby's seems plausible. Yeah.
0: When the time came, it was a 6,000-mile journey from California to Paris by train, bus, ship, and ferry, and it, that uh, took weeks. Yeah, this uh, is still before commercial flight. When they got to France on April 27th, they were held up in customs for somewhere between 6 to 12 hours, depending on the source. I've seen both. Uh, and eventually got so fresh out with the delay that they formed a scrum and forced their way off the ferry. <laughs>
1: Through customs? Through customs. Isn't that an act of war?
0: Uh, they didn't uh, let that escalate there, I guess. They didn't cause an international incident. But the press was not amused, dubbing them, quote, street fighters and saloon brawlers. Paris authorities canceled previously arranged matches uh, against local clubs and confined the Americans to a practice field... There was essentially a weedy lawn next to the... time
1: the Americans to jail for <laughs> fighting their way through customs. Uh,
0: but they wouldn't let them practice on any of the fields except for yeah. this one weedy lawn right next to the hotel they were staying at. Frustrated by this, the Americans broke into the Stade Colomb and practiced there without permission, which only annoyed the French more. <laughs> <laughs> The French easily won against Romania with a score of 61-3, to which pleased the local fans. The Americans were set to play their first game in the tournament against Romania the following week and wanted to film it. The French refused, as a French company had been given exclusive filming rights for the entire Olympics. There was an argument over which, which Brit- British referee would be officiating. The Americans threatened to walk out if they weren't allowed to film the match against Romania, and eventually were permitted for historical and educational purposes only. Right before the match, despite a French security guard standing watch, somebody broke in during a practice session and stole $4,000 worth of cash and valuables from the American team.
1: So that security guard
0: was was $4,000 richer at the end of the day. (laughs) Or it was split up. (laughs) The take was split up with his crew. Uh, The press published articles challenging whether or not various American team members were actually amateurs. The Americans couldn't venture out in Paris without people insulting and spitting on them. Well, that's
1: normal Parisian (laughs) for American tourists, right?
0: Even American expats in Paris were keeping their distance. (laughs) On May 11th, the match against Romania finally happened. A crowd of 6,000 Parisians were absolutely... Or, the crowd of 6,000 Parisians... We're absolutely rooting for the Romanians, but they didn't have a lot to cheer for. The Americans won 37 to nothing, and even the hostile press had to admit they did pretty good. The rose-lined path to a French gold was looking less certain. To add to the mess, the Americans got kicked out of their hotel for, quote, boisterous behavior. (laughs)
2: That doesn't sound like us at
0: all. It doesn't sound like a rugby team either, does it? Uh, 40,000 spectators showed up for the May 18th match between France and the U.S. That would decide the new Olympic champion. The preparation for what was guaranteed to be a rowdy crowd included a high-wire fence that had been built around the perimeter of the playing field.
1: It's a cage match! (laughs) pretty much. The
0: Americans had managed to win two significant concessions before the match. They got their choice of referee... Sam Freethy from Wales, and they got him to agree that they would play two halves of 45 minutes each instead of each half being 40 minutes. The Americans were counting on their superior stamina to help them get over the top. I feel like this
1: flies in the face of your earlier standardized rules section.
0: Yeah, it does.
1: Like, we've standardized the rules, we all know how this works, but let's go ahead and change it on On the the
0: fly, right before. Uh, Although, they, they... I mean, this was listed along with they got their choice of referee, so they, they didn't just, like, pick the referee out of the lineup the day of. Are you sure? I mean, I'm assuming. <laughs> anyway, uh, the guy who was from Wales. Was he just hanging out in France the whole time? Well, no, it wasn't the Olympics. Yeah, anyway. Um, the French believed that they could have a six-hour match, and it wouldn't matter. The Americans would never beat them.
1: Six hours later, the first <laughs>
0: half was brutal but low-scoring. At halftime, the Americans were leading three to nothing. The crowd was wild from the start, cheering when American John O'Neill was taken off the field with internal stomach injuries. What? Two
1: questions. Yeah, uh, is three equivalent to, like, one score of a rugby? Does it go in, like, increments the way that American football does?
0: They, yeah, they have different scores for, like, touchdowns and field goals because they do the field goal, so that's too. An,
1: that's, like, basically one scoring event occurred yeah. for three points. Yeah. And as then you can, gave a guy internal bleeding?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one paper reported women in the crowd shrieked instructions at the American players as to what anatomical portions of the visitors they wished destroyed. The French were counting on their winger, Adolphe Yaragui, but the Americans focused on him, pummeling him with legitimate tackles until he was left bleeding and unconscious on the field and had to be carried off. The second half was worse. One One French journalist declared, Our men were too frail and hesitant, too fragile. One French
1: journalist was killed during the second
0: half. Uh, yeah, he he declared our men were too frail and hesitant too fragile. The crowd was not French rugby fans in the 1920s had a reputation similar to that of British soccer hooligans today And they lived up to that American fans in the crowd were beaten up and their bodies were carried down to the pitch So they, that they could be carried away via ambulance as the Americans started scoring in the second half uh, Norman Cleveland later said I thought they were dead. We were sure it was only a matter of time before they got their hands on us one of the reserve players, an art student from Illinois named Gideon Nelson, was hit in the face with a walking stick. At the end of the game, the Americans had won 17-3. to 3. Is this the era
1: where walking sticks still had swords hidden inside of them we at all bot- times? I mean, they still do now. I mean, well, then that guy got stabbed in the face. <laughs>
0: uh, Norman again said they were throwing bottles and rocks and clawing at us through the fence. We had no idea what was going to happen. Teammate Charlie Doe didn't realize they were having a medal ceremony until he saw the band pick up their instruments and the flag starting to rise. He couldn't hear the music over the screaming crowd. We have an excerpt from The Strangest Moments. The number one. Yeah. I don't know what page. Yeah. This is page 58. Yeah, there we go.
1: The Then we saw the stars and stripes being raised and realized that they were playing the Star-Spangled Banner. We had completely forgotten about the medal ceremony, which took place in front of tens of thousands of people who wanted to rip us to shreds.
0: (laughs) The American team needed a police escort to get back to the changing rooms. So that was the first event of the 1924 Summer Games, and it was the last time rugby would be an Olympic event until 2016, when Rugby Sevens was introduced.
1: And I assume that in that event, hundreds died. (laughs)
0: I but we'll get like, to that
1: one if you want I
0: weeks. think, like, Samoa one or something. <laughs> uh, starting off with some basic... We're, go, we're now on to boxing. Starting off with some...
1: Which is allowed in this, this city.
0: It is allowed in Paris, yes. Uh, not, not in Stockholm. Uh, boxing. Starting off with some basics about boxing. There were eight weight classes. Flyweight, bantamweight, featherweight, lightweight, welterweight, middleweight, light, heavyweight, and heavyweight. Competition was held from July 15th to 20th with two sessions a day, except for the one day they spent investigating a protest. <laughs> there was a lot going on. Uh, there were 181 athletes from one, from 27 nations competing. The U.S. won the medal race of the event with two gold, two silver, and two bronze for a total of six medals. Great Britain and Argentina won four, four medals total, Denmark three, Belgium and Norway two each, and South Africa, Canada, and France all winning one. Boxing was the most scandal-plagued event of these games. Ooh. While there were no secret identities, there were some incredibly corrupt judges. Uh, I did not find any information about this on the official Olympics website or on Wikipedia. It was kind of whitewashed. But luckily, the main victims in this of this corruption were British boxers, and I was able to find other sources that went in-depth about it that I could read. Um, The crowd was particularly rowdy for this event and made it very well known that they didn't like the rolling in the ring. For example, in a welterweight bout between Italian Giuseppe Oldani and Canadian Douglas Lewis, Oldani was disqualified by British referee T.H. Walker for holding Lewis too much. I do like the hugging. Oldani pleaded his case with increasing drama, eventually throwing himself on the mat in tears when his appeal was denied. The Italian crowd lost its mind. Hurling litter, coins, and walking cane knobs at Walker. It took over an hour before finally a guard of American, South African, and British boxers escorted Walker from the ring and out of the velodrome to safety. Lewis went on to win the bronze medal, losing to Jean Delarge of Belgium in the semifinals. Which I think is a good name for a boxer, Delarge. Right. <laughs> the final match between Delarge and Argentinian Hector Mendez was also chaotic. The large won a controversial points decision, and the Argentinians in the crowd reacted with the same vitriol that Aldani had inspired. In an attempt to defend his nation's honor, in the middle of the fray, a Belgian spectator burst onto the ring and unfurled a Belgian flag. For whatever reason, but probably because there weren't as many Argentinians in the crowd, it only took 15 minutes to subdue this uproar. (laughs) But the most absurd display came in the quarterfinals of the middleweight division in about between Harry Mallon of Great Britain and Roger Bruce of France. This one is nuts. Malin was the elder of the two, returning to defend his gold medal from the 1920 games at 32 years old. Bruce was 23 years old, making his Olympic Ooh. debut in front of a home crowd.
1: Reverse numerals.
0: Yes. It was an intense battle. And near the end, Mallon appeared, appealed to the Belgian referee between rounds. Bruce had bitten him several times on the shoulder and chest, with bite marks clearly visible.
1: Is that... not allowed?
2: I
0: feel like that's not allowed. That's
1: not allowed. Is but, that why they always wear those mouth guard so that they can't bite people? Yeah, that's why. <laughs>
0: that's, uh, the referee ruled that Malin had not been bitten, despite, like, the tooth marks <laughs> on his chest. Okay. And refused to call off the match. To spectators, it appeared as if Malin comfortably won on points, but the referee and one of the judges, an Italian, ruled that Bruce had won, giving him the victory in a two-to-one decision. Bruce broke into rapturous tears and was carried away on the shoulders of a delighted French of delighted French spectators. A, a Swedish ringside official, IOC member Oscar Soderlund, who wasn't one of the judges, he wasn't the referee in the match. He was like just sitting at ringside. Saw the bite marks and filed a protest <laughs> As they were investigating the claims Going as so far as to Seeking a medical opinion as to whether The po- tooth marks on Malin's shoulder and chest Meant that he had been bitten <laughs> <laughs> right. Not
1: that he had been bitten By this person in particular Another
0: but. one Of Bruce's opponents came forward To back up his claims Manolo Gallardo of Argentina Had also been bitten in his match Against the Frenchman <laughs>
1: A joke in here somewhere.
0: Bruce's defense,
1: okay. My teeth just flew out of my head. I have those yakity stacks chattering teeth from the movie with the haunted chattering teeth. It just.
0: Bruce's defense was that his jaw would snap involuntarily while he was punching, and somehow, Gallardo and Malin's body parts just happened to be in the way when this happened, and the bites were all clearly
2: accidents.
1: I'm gonna just. <laughs> Jab my fist
2: into the air And reflex.
1: walk towards you And if you get well, punched It's,
2: it's a <laughs> reflex If my mouth gets near any person <laughs> I bite And that's not me That's my brain That's
0: like any time I throw a punch I go <laughs> like... <laughs> like That's terrifying <laughs> What is he a gator? Unbelievably The jury of appeal Actually bought this And ruled that the biting Had been accidental Does that matter? However, it still wasn't allowed. Okay. (laughs) And Bruce was disqualified.
1: I feel like that might have just been to avoid farther. I'd be like, oh, your insane story? We 100% believe it because we want to move on. But, like, also, you still can't do that. What are you talking about? Like, give your medal back.
0: Malin advanced to the final against fellow Englishman John Elliott. Bruce attended the match uh, as a spectator and was distraught. Did he bite anyone? (laughs) his countrymen lifted him up and tried to carry him into the ring so he could compete (laughs) they would not be calmed down by the actual competitors set to start or the officials and the situation nearly became a riot until a large cohort of gendarmes who are the armed police in Paris uh, were detached to impose some kind of order and allow the match to proceed Malin won gold bite marks and all and the british press had a field day Sarah, do you want to read that
2: excerpt i feel like that just that's what the british really want though is to, to be, be bitten? to be maligned so they can complain oh, about it yeah, sure. so down here is what they had to say <laughs> it was found necessary to substitute for a mere boxer a man eating expert named bruce <laughs> whose passion for raw meat led him to attempt to bite off portions of his opponent's anatomies <laughs>
0: <laughs> long pig <laughs> I'm gonna take this you can read the equestrian one too when we get there because that's what's next <gasps> equestrian
2: wait do the horses try to eat anyone <laughs> no No, that guy ran and tried to bite a horse
0: <laughs> as he was jumping over
2: I just. at what point do you think he was like you know what
0: <laughs> I'm gonna eat a horse
2: I know what I'm gonna do I know how I'm gonna win this <laughs> Maybe it's, it's not even like, this is how I'm going to win. It's this is the only time I can beat
1: someone I, without getting how arrested. Do you,
2: how do you get to the point where you're like, I'm going to bite this guy. And I'm not going to do it once. I'm going to do it 20 times.
0: <laughs> he had bite marks on him. like, And the judge was like, no, you don't.
2: Yeah, I know. But like, <laughs> I'm talking about the guy who bit him. That's <laughs> What was his deal? <laughs> how did he get there? I have a lot of questions. Uh. He's <laughs> standing on a metaphorical pile of chewed opponents yeah like did he do did he bite people before like I have a thousand questions I
0: don't think you start biting people in the Olympics I feel like if you're trying to
2: have done it before yeah
0: and they were like it's fine you just do it it's fine and the
2: judges are always like we didn't see anything
0: I guess which is the craziest thing if I mean bite marks aren't really like you don't mistake them for something no one wants to
2: be bitten I feel like nobody wants to fight this guy. I'm very upset. He just got a bunch of, like,
1: forfeitures on his way up to the Olympics because everyone was like, I'm not going to get bit by this lunatic.
2: He probably has rabies.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Ooh. All
0: right. Equestrian. I'm going to quote directly from the Wikipedia entry about what equestrian events were held at the 1924 Olympics.
2: Horse jumping, but the kind where you jump over the horse.
0: The equestrian events at the 1924 Paris Olympics included
2: horse diving
0: eventing individual and team medals, show jumping individual and team medals and dressage individual medals vaulting was not included this year
2: jousting.
0: did you guys ever watch
2: that movie about the girl who would do the whole wild song? hearts can't be broken yeah, there was like a twitter thread about that the other day and I had forgotten about that movie until exactly that moment and I was like oh my god there
0: was like a series of Disney movies for kids set during yeah. the depression yeah and it was like that and the rocketeer which uh-huh. was also really good so. No, there there
2: were good there were good Disney movies when we were kids. Anyways, that movie rules. That does. It rule. was good. It was. That's a weird sport.
0: It is very. There weird. wasn't
2: anything else to do during the Depression. It
0: was high diving horses. That's weird. they were like you know what? <laughs> We're gonna throw horses
2: into some water and see what happens. We're gonna put a lady on the back.
0: It's like a small man made like dug little jumping pool. Oh, it's would, terrifying that they would make this horse jump into off a high dive. It's
2: uh, horrifying. Horses, notoriously brave animals. <laughs> <laughs> who love to fall from great heights.
0: Climbing up the ladder and then jumping off how a high dive. How teach and... a horse
2: to do a ladder? Or, did, I'm sorry, I'm how, getting off.
0: How do you teach a horse to do any of that? Anyway, that wasn't happening here. But watch Wild Hearts <laughs> Can't Be Broken. That's right. <laughs> great.
2: That's free. That's a free recommendation. Free rec.
0: There were 17 nations competing in these events, including five teams in all three disciplines, France, Sweden, Belgium, Switzerland, and Czechoslovakia, with a total of 111 entries and 126 horses. I don't know why there were extra horses. You need some spare horses. Gotta have
2: some, you gotta have some spares. What if the guy from the boxing tries to bite yeah, one of your horses? True, that yeah. guy will die. Because <laughs> the horse will kick him in the face. depends on which part of the horse he tries to bite.
0: Horses don't in Don't bite the back. <laughs> Horses in both jump, jumping and eventing were required to carry packs of at least 75 kilograms or 165 pounds.
2: I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> it, it makes them jump better? I don't know. No, no. <laughs> it makes it much
2: harder for them yeah. to jump. I know, all... I know. The well, problem was, was that sorry, they, how much did they weigh? to prevent the um, horses from just
1: jumping into, this, into space.
2: 165 space. You gotta weigh pounds. them down. That is insane. So oh, they had a person and 165 It was like two them.
0: riders on them, yeah.
2: Although the, the and they were making them jump.
0: The rider didn't weigh 165 so, fun, pounds. Well, but, yeah,
2: but fun fact, <laughs> that is really bad for a horse's back.
0: Yeah, uh, I don't think they Friday did Why
2: spare horses?
0: This was the 20s. They just got back from the war. They had, like, horse gas masks. I know, but
2: I'm just like, <laughs> that is that is the worst thing that you could do. Do you wanna do you wanna get, get a horse with a sway back? Because you're gonna know get a horse with a sway back.
0: Yeah, we just talked that's about why there's spare horses. We just talked about how they have horses jumping off of frickin' high dives into like ten foot pools. Yes, that's <laughs> better for their Those health. Those horses
1: will <laughs> only have busted legs. These horses will have busted backs.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Frank gets it. That's why we've got spares. Civilians were permitted to compete in the show jumping competition, but most of the competitors were military officers anyway.
2: I'm sorry. They just let anybody in?
0: No, civilians. Before all. Sorry. Oh,
2: the, right. Okay.
0: The city's burning down.
2: Is it? I don't I know, know what that I is.
0: Live. <laughs> Heading towards Frank's apartment. Mm.
2: Um, <laughs> R.I.P. Frank's apartment. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but yeah, so you didn't have to be a military officer to compete this time, but most of them were anyway. Uh, the show jumping course was very challenging, and not everybody managed to make it the whole way through. Out of the 43 riders who entered, only 34 finished the course. And half of those, 17 riders, had penalties for going over time.
1: Were they allowed to use their own horses, or were they assigned randomly? No,
0: they were allowed. It's the only the modern pentathlon okay. where you have a random one. There weren't any major scandals as far as I could find, but there were elements of the dressage competition that were poorly considered that led to frustration on the part of all the athletes. There was a time limit on dressage, which is not done anymore. They were permitted 10.5 minutes, or 10 minutes, 30 seconds, and docked points if they went over time. The first few entries blew past the time limit, and later riders just skipped parts of the course to save on time. There were five judges on the course, but they all sat together on one side of the arena, which was 60 by 20 meters.
1: <laughs> so you want to do well when you're on that side. Yeah. And when you're back there, just, eh.
0: And they couldn't see the whole thing. But I guess since these circumstances were equally bad for everybody, instead of just some particular being favored, like the whole thing with Bruce getting away with trying to eat people in the ring, (laughs) there weren't major dust-ups over this like there were in other events. Uh, Event... Oh, I I thought we had an excerpt from this, but we don't. Eventing had even fewer riders finished than the show jumping. Of the 44 who entered, only 32 finished. There are five phases to the endurance portion of the eventing event. Roads and tacks, a course 7 kilometers long that had to be finished in 29 minutes and 10 seconds or less. A 4 kilometer steeplechase that had to be complete, co- completed in 7 minutes, 2 seconds. Another roads and tacks course that was 15 kilometers long and had to be finished in 1 hour, 2 minutes, 30 seconds. A cross-country course that was 8 kilometers long, which included 36 obstacles that had a max height of... Of 1.15 meters, 1.15 meters, and a width of three and a half meters that had to be completed in 17 minutes and 46 seconds. And finally, a two kilometer free gallop that had to be completed in six minutes. There was also a jumping competition and dressage competition aspects to this.
1: These are all consecutive? I
0: mean, I don't think they were all on the same day. Oh, okay, okay.
1: Uh, uh, and okay. I feel like horses can run, what do you say, 7K in 27 minutes or
0: something? Yeah, but uh, let's see. The The one that was just a straight gallop was a 2 kilometers, and they only had 6 minutes for it, which I think is not too difficult. I mean, 2 kilometers is like, eww, mile yeah. So that, yeah, and like a human, like a top athlete human can run a 4-minute mile pretty easily. So that that part, I think, was pretty simple. The other parts sounded crazy. <laughs> like, if, well, 5
1: 7k in twenty. but
0: all the other ones had obstacles and jumps and things that they had to navigate as they were doing it was the thing
1: yeah jumps are tough
0: um eight riders were eliminated during this endurance event one during the jumping test and three just didn't bother showing up to jumping which was held the day after the endurance test The medals were spread pretty wide in equestrian. The big winner was Sweden, winning four medals. The Netherlands, Switzerland, Italy all won two. And then Denmark, Poland, Portugal, France, and the United States all managed one each. Sloan Doak of the United States, riding Pathfinder, won a bronze for individual eventing. And we don't really win many Olympic uh, equestrian events. I singled him out. (laughs) Fencing. Oh, fencing gets crazy. All right. Fencing was bad in 1924.
1: So if boxing escalated to biting, did fencing escalate to just a gun?
0: <laughs> Nobody got shot in this. Somebody ah, did get shot in a different event.
1: That's right. That was the cold open. <laughs> yeah,
0: the cold open. Somebody gets shot in these Olympics. Uh, fencing was bad in 1924. But before we get to the real rough stuff, I want to talk about something cool. Uh, there was a women, women's event for the first time ever at the Olympics in fencing. 25 fencers from nine nations competed in women's individual foil. Denmark, Great Britain, Sweden, Switzerland, France, the United States, the Netherlands, Poland, and Hungary were all represented. Ellen Osier of Denmark won gold. Gladys Davis of Great Britain silver and Greta Heckscher, also of Denmark, won bronze. Ellen Osier's husband was a seven-time Olympian and had won silver in 1920, 1912 in an individual epee. The men's Fencing events is where things got real. It was so bad that the Wikipedia entry has a special section on all the controversies and fallout from them. And IOC websites just don't really talk much about fencing other than the results. (laughs) Which we'll do in just a quick overview. Uh, France won the total medals in the events with three gold and three silver for a total of six. Belgium and Hungary got four each. Denmark and Italy both got two. Great Britain and the Netherlands and Sweden all got one each. So let's get into what happened. First of all, as you might have noticed with the medal totals, the Hungarians were back. And if you recall, we talked about this a couple episodes ago. They were in the beginning stages of a multi-decade total dominance of Sabre right before the wars when they started this dynasty.
1: Are they the team that does first blood to the ground rules?
0: No, that was Sweden. There was some respite for the other countries in 1920 when the Hungarians weren't invited to compete, but now they were back. It was the Hungarians and the Italians and all the different ways these teams intertwined that led to trouble. The Italians were defending champions due to almost due almost entirely to the accomplishments of one man. If you remember Nato Nadi, the guy who like won everything.
1: Oh, was he one of the brothers who yes. were the king of all time sword fighting? Yeah, yeah. except
0: his, their dad thought Epe was stupid, and they had to practice that one in secret. Right. Um, <clears throat> we talked about him in the nineteen twenty episodes. Nadi did not return to defend those medals, choosing to go out on a high note. (laughs) So the Italians were already at a significant disadvantage, even without the Hungarians returning. There were a number of Italians who were coaches for the Hungarians, and this led to tempers running hot. So the Hungarians had a lot of Italian coaches. Areste Puliti was the team favorite for the Italian saber fencers, and it became clear to everybody that the rest of his team was going easy on him in order to ease his path to the finals. Because the way the tournament worked out, Anytime he was up against an Italian, they just kind of, like, didn't really put much of a fight. Yeah, what...
1: Wait. Why wouldn't you just put your best person in, in the finals?
0: Well, because they have to get to the finals. They yeah. have to go through all the, the heats to get there. Okay. So, anytime he was matched up against another Italian, they didn't put up... They didn't really fight too hard, so he could win an easy match in advance.
1: This just seems like a sound strategy to me. Are yeah. you really sub-
0: Yeah. Um, you're not supposed to at least... Apparently, they're being really obvious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, they should have...
0: Faked it better? Faked it better. Know. Both the Hungarian judge, George Kovacs, and the French judge, somebody named Lejeu, I couldn't find his first name, uh, both denounced the tactic. Which didn't do Pellidi any good, because when Kovacs and Lejeu challenged him, he lost his temper and made threatening remarks to both of them. And for this, he was disqualified.
1: Oof.
0: Sandor Polsta of Hungary won gold, Roger Decre of France won silver, and Janos Geré of Hungary won bronze. Pellidi did win a gold medal, however, in the Team Sabre competition, which had been held two days before the individual. Uh, Hungary won silver, and the Netherlands won bronze. Anyway, the evening before his disqualification, Pellidi confronted... uh, The evening after his disqualification, I'm sorry. uh, Pellidi confronted Kovacs at the Foy Bergeret, a Parisian cabaret, where they got into it again. They actually came to blows, and after being separated, they agreed to duel to settle the matter. Which, a for real duel a for real duel which they did four months later dueling on the yugoslav italian border for over an hour the result was that both men were seriously injured the duel was called off and they both lost this was not the only duel <laughs> the other was between a man named adolfo Contor- controni and giorgio santelli both were italian It's unclear exactly how Controni came to be involved, as sources are not consistent as to what his actual job was. He was either a fencing critic for an Italian newspaper or the coach of the Italian foil team. Santelli was the 27-year-old son of Italo Santelli, the 60-year-old coach of the Hungarian Olympic team. There was a scoring controversy, which makes me think that Controni was a coach and not a journalist, but the matter was to be settled with a duel. The younger Santelli invoked the code duello in order to fight in the place of his father. It was held in the town of Abrazia, which is near the Hungarian border, and fought with heavy sabers. This duel did not last as long as the other one, and was called off after only two minutes when Santelli scored a significant blow on Controni's forehead.
1: With a sword.
0: Yeah, with a, with a heavy saber. Were duels legal? <laughs> In, in the I, in I the don't, 20s? don't think so, okay, okay. <laughs> like, after new, like duels have been like illegal pretty much everywhere for a long time.
1: They're still legal in like Paraguay or Uruguay? I, when, I think it. as long as both people are registered organ donors you're allowed to have a duel. <laughs> okay. That was true as of like 2006 at least.
0: How do you know this? I know things. Were you challenged to a duel in Paraguay?
1: No. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. I like took Spanish for four years in high school.
0: <laughs> Alright, you're not going to say on the record, I get it. After news of the impending second duel reached the British press, they lost it. The British had been restive against the Olympics for months, thinking the entire thing too corrupt to work. The fact that there were no now open conflicts growing out of the Olympics were considered terrible risk. This is barely six years since the end of the First World War.
1: But at least we know that when the duels are happening, nobody's like corrupt and taking a fall in a real duel like they're both gonna honestly compete
0: yeah but i mean also the world war one was kicked off by a relatively minor event so they're not mm. and all these guys are nobility
2: that is it was an assassination
0: it was but like that's just it, a what it, it made much of
2: a really was one-sided minor, duel a minor assassination
0: uh, you can hear the anxiety in this excerpt from the Times, from an article titled, In All Caps, No More Olympic Games. So.
1: In their defense, if the Olympic Games end in several European nobles dying of stab wounds, <laughs> okay. there might be another land. Uh,
0: we have like a. Who wants to read this one? I'll take this. Absolutely. Okay, Frank's going to take it.
1: No More Olympic Games! All caps. It's editorial thundered. Miscellaneous turbulence, shameful disorder, storms of abuse, free fights, and the drowning of national anthems of friendly nations by shouting and booing are not conductive to an atmosphere of Olympic calm. Disturbances of this kind, culminating in open expressions of national hostility, might conceivably end in worse trouble than the duel which, it is feared, may take place as a result of the personal quarrel in which a Hungarian and Italian fencer have allowed themselves to become involved. The peace of the world is too precious to justify any risk, however wild, the, however wild this idea may seem, of its being sacrificed on the altar of international sport."
0: So finally these Olympics saw the return and retirement of one of the greats, Ramon Fonst, the Cuban epee fencer who had won in glorious style in 1900 and 1904. Remember he was like the 16 year old sole Cuban competitor who won a bunch of gold medals in, in Paris the last time. Uh, He's ready for war. He was unable to advance past the semifinals. (sighs) And the Cuban team was unable to advance past the quarterfinals in Team Epe. For all the drama at the boxing and fencing competitions, and for all the drama in wrestling competitions in the past, this one went relatively smoothly. The events were Greco-Roman and Freestyle Wrestling, broken down into seven weight classes for Greco-Roman and six weight classes for Freestyle. A total of 229 wrestlers from 26 nations competed. Finland utterly dominated, winning 16 medals. The next closest in the medal table was the US with six. Switzerland won five, Sweden four, Estonia and Hungary won two each, and France, Belgium, Great Britain, and Japan all won one medal. We're going to talk about this Japanese wrestler because it's Pretty interesting.
1: Uh, Japanese wrestling is a big deal.
0: Well, this was before it was a big deal.
1: Mm, seems it's gonna be a big deal pretty quick.
0: Yeah, it is. It is, <laughs> but this was before that. This started it. Yeah, we get into that. Um, the Japanese wrestler was a man named Kat- Katsutoshi Naito. He won Japan's only medal in the Olympic Games, but the only reason he was competing for Japan at all is an unfortunate one in American history. Naito was born in Hiroshima. But didn't stay there long Both of his parents died when he was young And he was sent to live with an older sister in Taiwan Eventually he made his way to Penn State Where Hmm. he majored in horticulture
1: Go Nittany Lions? Yeah (laughs) Uh,
0: Greco-Roman and other western forms of wrestling Were not popular in Japan And other areas in Asia at the time When Naito Got to Penn State He was already accomplished in Kodokan Judo But nobody knew what judo was in the middle of Pennsylvania in the early 20th century. Or now. So they know what judo is now. (laughs) So he joined the wrestling team. He was a phenom and quickly earned the nickname Tiger (laughs) Naito. Unfortunately, his modest academic goals and athletic success were not enough to protect him from growing anti-immigrant sentiment. The situation at Penn State was so tense that the rector invited... Naito to live in his house instead of stay in the dorms. Then the Immigration Act of 1924, also known as the Asian Exclusion Act, made it so that Naito was ineligible for the American Olympic wrestling team. Just as the Americans were largely uninterested in Judo, Japan at the time was largely uninterested in Western styles of wrestling, preferring Judo over Greco-Roman. But because that was what Naito had been training in, he joined the Japanese Olympic team as a freestyle wrestler. While training on the ship from the United States to France, he injured several fingers, but still managed to compete and come in third. His bronze medal was the only medal Japan won in 1924. After the Olympics, Naito opted to return to Japan. He made attempts at popular popularizing freestyle wrestling, but after the Japanese team had little success in 1928, whatever progress he had made was lost again to judo. In 1928, Naito emigrated with his family to Brazil, where he enjoyed a successful career in business and was chairman of Brazil's Horticultural Association. He is also credited with introducing judo and kendo to Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh... So, uh, the next few events don't have any big controversies, but we do have some interesting stories, both good and bad.
1: No one's gotten shot yet.
0: There is somebody who will get shot. There is... <laughs> it's kind of an incredible story. <clears throat> there were two types of cycling races... Or t- starting off with cycling. There are two types of cycling races at the 1924 Olympics. Road cycling and track cycling. For the road cycling, the two races were individual time trial and team time trial. The track racing had only four events. The 50-kilometer race, the sprint tandem and team pursuit the t- a total of 139 athletes from 24 nations competed in cycling at these games france won the cycling medal race with four golds and two bronzes for a total of six netherlands and belgium won three gold medals great britain won two and italy denmark poland and sweden all earned one each the big story from this h- is hometown hero armand blanchonette blanchonet before we get into what Blanchinette did, we need to talk again about what time trials are, mostly because I still don't really understand how a lot of these cycling events work.
1: I was going to ask if we had reached the point where the rules were comprehensible.
0: They still do these, but I so never... So not yet. Yeah. <laughs> the, so they're, close. The. All right. The reason why time trials exist is that when all the racers are in a big group together, that's when they all get to take advantage of aerodynamics and slipstreams and the like. The racers in time trials are deliberately spaced out so that they don't get any of those advantages and it's considered a more accurate result of what the individual athletes can do. The time to beat is based on whatever the last record at the course is. And the racers are paced out with the weakest first and the best at the end. This does give the base, best racers the advantage of knowing what the time to beat is, and also makes the race more interesting to watch. Blanchonnet, a.k.a. Le, Le Phénomène, a.k.a. King Kong, swept the, gold, the road cycling time trials and won two gold medals. And we have an IOC article about this. I just linked the whole thing.
1: Put it in the show notes. Yeah. On our Snapchat.
0: <laughs> it's only a couple. It's, it's pretty short. Um, Blanchet was a cyclist of supreme stamina and power, and he would sweep his way to two gold medals to confirm France's love affair with the Velo. First, there was an the individual time trial raced over 188 kilometers through the leafy suburbs of Paris, starting and finishing in the Stade Olympique y- Yves de Manoir, or the Olympic Stadium. The sophisticated backup teams supporting cyclists now were a long way away in those days, and many of the competitors set out on their journey as burdened with equipment as a jungle adventurer, laden down with spare inner tubes and tires. The cyclists also carried the food and water they needed to get through a race, which would last well over six hours. So they had, like, no pit crew, essentially. They just carried all the stuff they needed with them.
1: As it should be.
0: <laughs> now they have, like, support teams. That, yeah, like,
1: and don't... now they have steroids, yeah. so it's fine. They probably had those. Back then, actually.
0: Not only were they entrusted with maintaining their bikes in working order, they also had to navigate an array of obstacles, including a route which took several steam railway crossings. <laughs> Blanchet headed home in the 71-man field in a time of 6 hours, uh, 20 minutes, and 48 seconds to take France's first Olympic gold in the event. A matter of days later came the team event, and again, Blanchet paid played a key role in achieving an equally comfortable victory. Racing over the same course, 188 kilometer course, Blanchonet and teammates Rene Hamel, Andre Leduc, and Georges Wampst saw the French team home in a cumulative 19 hours, 30 minutes, and 14 seconds, some 16 minutes faster than second place Belgium.
1: Maybe they were just stuck behind the train for 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah,
0: true. This was also the last time a 50 kilometer track race was held, so pour one out for a real one. Thirty-seven athletes from don't pour anything on my table. <laughs> Thirty-seven athletes from sixteen nations competed. They all had what to compete you They all had to complete one hundred laps of the velodrome track. Oof. We only know the time for the gold medalist. Co. Willems of Netherlands won with a time of one hour, eighteen minutes, and twenty-four seconds. British cyclists Cyrus Alden and Harry Wilde won silver and bronze. Willems was able to win due to a strategy worked out by him and teammate John Moss. Moss went harder to tire out the rest of the field, and when he got worn out at the end, that's when Willems made his sprint for the final. And this strategy worked. At the ninety fifth lap, every cyclist who had been lapped had to withdraw, leaving only fifteen to finish the race. Willems made his attack and in the final lap pulled ahead of the rest of the field. So sailing. We have like one really interesting story from this.
1: Did someone get shot? With Nobody a got shot in sailing. I'm going to keep asking.
0: Going it's going to get, happen going to eventually. Ha- it, it does happen eventually. Someone did get shot, just not in sailing. There were th- only three sailing events in 1924, presenting a much more streamlined program than previous Olympics. Also aiding the streamlining event was a new rule that only one ship per country, per class, was allowed to compete.
1: Oh. You can't just bring out all the local boats from the Parisian docks? Yeah, and you can't do that go anymore. Go to town in the same?
0: Yeah and like make up a bunch of events that only one boat uh, <laughs> qualifies for and then rack up your medal count. <clears throat> Who was that? Was that Belgium?
1: Oh, Or uh, Stockholm
0: or something. Somebody, they had some crazy things. All right, 19 countries sent ships, including first timers, Canada, Argentina, Spain, Portugal, Italy, South Africa, Czechoslovakia, Poland and Cuba. The three events featured two classics and a new event and the Wikipedia entry on this is so well done, I can actually explain what they were. <laughs> The returning events were the 6-meter and the 8-meter, both keelboat types. The 6-meter ships had three sailors, and the 8-meter ships had a crew of five sailors. The new type was the French National Monotype, a dinghy that only had one sailor on its crew. Doing their Viking ancestors proud, Norway won the medal race in sailing with two golds and a silver. Every other nation that managed to win a medal got one each. Belgium, Denmark, Great Britain, France, Finland, and the Netherlands. One of the crew members on the champion Norwegian six meter ship was a man named Eugene Lund, who was the first of a dynasty of Norwegian Olympic sailors that so far has lasted four generations. So we'll be hearing about this family again in 1952, 1968, and 2000. And 2024
1: and 2031.
0: Sailing, as in some previous Olympics, was officially a co-ed event as there was one single woman participating. And she's such an impressive person that we're going to talk about her. Ella Meyerd. She was not only a member of the six-meter Swiss ship, she was also captain of the Swiss women's land hockey team, or field hockey. Land what, hockey? As a they called it the land hockey. hockey. Yeah, uh, And was an international skier. But it wasn't until the 1930s, when she retired from international sport competition and started traveling, that she found her calling. She became a travel writer. Her first book, Turkestan Solo, One Woman's Expedition from, I think this might be my autocorrect screwing me up, Shan to the Kizil Qum, detailed her journey from Moscow to Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan in 1932. She wrote 14 books and created four documentary films in total, all about her travels through mostly, mostly through the Muslim republics of the USSR and parts of Asia. Today her books, including her evocative photography are Hey Mimi. She's interested in this. Uh, are considered important historical records of these places. She didn't just sightsee, she was sent specifically to places like Manchuria in 1934 to report on the Japanese occupation. She was awarded six different accolades for her journalistic work. Her last trip to Tibet was in 1986, and she died in 1997 at the age of 94. Shooting.
1: Is this where someone gets shot? Please say no. It would be way funnier if it's something else.
0: (laughs) It's shooting.
1: It's shooting? It's shooting,
0: but it's still a good story. A total of 250 athletes from 27 nations competed in the 10 shooting events at the 1924 Paris Olympics. Notable first included Haiti making their Olympic debut. They won a bronze medal for team-free rifle. Uh, When it was all said and done, the USA was number one for shooting in these games. Woo! USA! (laughs) USA!
1: USA! (laughs) Uh,
0: Winning nine medals total with five of them gold. The next highest medal winner was Norway and Sweden with four each, then Great Britain and Finland with three, France with two, and Hungary, Canada, Denmark, Switzerland, and as we said, Haiti, all with one each. There were no brawls in this event like there were in fencing or boxing. It was for the best, considering the whole firearm thing. But there were some noteworthy events and competitors the swan dynasty of sweden saw its swan song uh, in these games (laughs) (laughs) alfred you don't have to laugh that hard like don't joke alfred swan had competed Mimi appreciates me alfred swan had competed in 1908 1912 1920 and 1924 this was the first time he competed without his father oscar he won the last two medals of his career in running deer double shots and team running deer single shots winning a bronze in each this brought his career total to nine. Three gold, three silver, and three bronze. Ole Lilo Olsen of Norway had a shorter career but actually won more gold medals than Swan. This was his final Olympics as well, having competed in 1920 and already winning three gold medals. He didn't quite repeat winning a silver in the team 100-meter running deer and double shots competition and golds in 100-meter running deer single shots and 100-meter running double deer double shots. and um,
1: is that the, you have two shots to kill a deer? Yeah,
0: I think okay. so. And it's not real deer. They're like Yeah, that's deer on I track. mean,
1: we've established that it should have been, but yes. yeah.
0: American Lieutenant Sidney Hines won gold in the free rifle team event shooting a perfect 50, which would have been noteworthy enough on its own if not for the fact that partway through the competition, a Belgian rifleman got into a heated argument with a referee. During the course of this argument, the Belgian threw his rifle on the ground. It discharged and hit Hines in the foot. <laughs>
1: So that's a crime.
0: Yeah, uh, Belgium didn't medal in the event, but the guy who got shot scored a perfect 50 and won the gold medal. Uh,
1: Did he... I like to imagine, did he get shot in the foot like while shooting and just kept shooting? (laughs) I guess.
0: France won silver and Haiti was the bronze medalist in that event. Finally, the strangest story out of these Olympics came afterward when one of the gold medal winning members of the American Team Clay Pigeons team, Bill Silkworth, got into some trouble. Or to be more accurate, he already was in trouble legal trouble.
1: But not for shooting a guy. Nope. That happened before. And that No, he was did, he fine. wasn't
0: a, he was wasn't shooting. Bill Silkworth was a stockbroker. Getting into the business in the early 20th century, by 1924 he had several terms as the president of the Consolidated Stock Exchange of New York under his belt. Huh. The nature of what he did is pretty complicated the way that stock exchanges can get complicated when people are committing fraud and uh
1: So, like, Bitcoin?
0: Yeah, or when people... Oh, I have it written when people get creative with the accounting in order to make it look like when they have money when they don't. So, like, mortgages? (laughs) Yeah, so I'm just going to quote a bit from the Wikipedia entry about him. Silkworth aggressively and successfully pursued new business for the exchange, and his career as president reached its peak in February 1922, when all trading records at the exchange were broken, ensuring that Silkworth, not New York Stock Exchange President McCormick, was the talk of Wall Street. So he was already, like, a competitor to the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, sorry.
1: Records were broken as in the best. Not records were broken as in all of the recording devices have ceased to function.
0: (laughs) Yes. Was what I
1: thought you meant for a second.
0: Uh, Silkworth resigned on June 21st, 1923, after an investigation into consolidated insider corruption discovered irregularities in his personal finances. During the Olympics, he was in the middle of what was called a, quote, long vacation.
1: That's called fleeing the country.
0: Yes. But this resignation and retreat from the business was not enough to keep him out of jail. In fact, during the competition, he was still dealing with legal troubles. Another quote. After he and seven others were indicated in late May 1924 for connection with the bankruptcy of Rainer, Nicholas, and Truesdell, he pleaded not guilty on May 29th, 1924, while held on $8,500 bail. His counsel... This was like a month before the games. His counsel... Philip C. Samuels was asked that the trial be postponed until September, as Silkworth expected to sail on May 30th to take part in the trap shooting contests in the Olympic Games. Prosecutor Peter F. McCoy instead asked for the trial to begin in August for when it was scheduled.
1: I'm I'm really picturing the arguments. Like, Your Honor, he's not a flight risk. I mean, okay, he's going to leave the country, but we know where they're going to be, so just, it's not like a flight risk. He just it's,
0: wants to compete in the It's Olympics. a flight
1: guarantee <laughs> to this place where we can bring him back.
0: There's going to be plenty of journalists. He was convicted in November 1924 of mail fraud, lost his first appeal in February 1926, and the second in April 1926. He then spent three months in jail, getting out early, and claiming that the whole prosecution was in fact retaliation for his support of the Strauss bill. It wasn't. He was a crook. I don't know what the Strauss Bill is, but he was definitely a crook. Yeah. This was not the last time Silkworth would see the inside of a courthouse, even if his stockbroker and mail fraud days were behind him. Another quote: He was held again in 1933, accused of theft by James F. Curtis of Roslyn, New York, a lawyer and former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. According to the suit, Curtis authorized Silkwell to sell a motorboat at the best possible price in November 1932. With Curtis claiming Silkworth paid him around half of the boat's value, Silkworth was arrested for grand larceny on May 17, 1933. He was freed of the theft charge on June 2nd. On September 14th, it was reported that Silkworth was suing Curtis for false arrest. With the verdict read by Justice Brennan of the Supreme Court, Curtis lost the suit and had to pay five hundred dollars of a twenty-five thousand dollars suit for false arrest and malicious prosecution. Despite all of this, the wiki entry, his wiki entry, still resolutely states that he was best known for his Olympic gold medal.
1: I mean, that might be true in two thousand nineteen, because we don't even know what that bill was that he violated. But we know what shooting is.
0: Yeah. Soccer. You mean football? Yes, football. This was a significant year for soccer at the Olympics and on the world stage and for Uruguay and South American soccer in general. As late as 1912, there were serious doubts as to whether or not to actually include soccer as a sport in the Olympics. By 1924, it accounted for a third of the income generated by the games. 22 nations sent teams... Remember, before that, the big one was fencing.
1: Yeah, but all those people are being killed in duels now, so...
0: (laughs) mm. Where they got find killed. A new where they got killed in the war, along with the cyclists. Mm. Cy- cycling took a big hit in the war. I don't know why that that sport in particular. But like the list of like athletes who died in the war, cycling got really nailed. Mm. Um, Twenty-two nations sent teams to the tournament this year, ensuring ensuring an actual tournament as opposed to the cobbled together, lackluster affairs of years past. Two notable absences, other than the Germans for reasons discussed earlier, were the United Kingdom and Denmark. The problem for those teams arose in 1921, when the Belgium Football Association started allowing stipends to players to make up for wages lost when they missed work. Soon this practice spread to four other associations. In 1923, Great Britain tried to get FIFA to agree that these stipends made the players who received them professionals. FIFA, (laughs) FIFA refused to accept the definition, and so Great Britain withdrew. I don't know if that's why Denmark withdrew as well, or if they had other reasons. For the 22 teams that did compete, Italy was the solid favorite. They hadn't lost a game since 1922. Uruguay was a dark horse. Like, literally, nobody knew anything about them. Drop
1: the song in here, in the post. Dark horse, the song.
0: <laughs> what, the Katy Perry song? Is that Katy Perry? Or does she just sing on it and it's a rap? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. Most of the South American teams... Oh, hey, sorry. They had won... We'll drop it in, though. Yeah, they had won the 1923 South American Championships... But that didn't really factor into anybody's assessment. Most of the South American teams never played outside of South America, and European teams rarely if ever traveled there. So there's no sense of what kind of play they were capable of other than they beat the Argentinians for the championship two to nothing. But nobody knows what the Argentinians play like. So no-
1: well, Argen- Argentina last I checked is in South America. Yeah. So The Argentinians same-
0: know, but they're not yeah. they're not even I don't think they even competed in this. Um, they traveled to Paris via third-class accommodations and had a successful tour of Spain before the Olympics. But this was largely ignored by the other teams, and the Uruguayans themselves stayed out of Paris during the Games. Instead of staying in the Olympic Village, they stayed ah. in, a, in a villa in the village of out at, and I already had it written like that. They stayed in a villa in the village of Argentuil instead of the Olympic Village.
1: Mm-hmm. That's X out.
0: Also important, they brought a doctor and a physical expert with them who monitored the team's health and made sure they were all in excellent condition before the tournament began, which was. That's
1: basically cheating.
0: was not common practice at yeah. the time.
1: Except for that Strychnine guy. Yeah, guy, guy. Yeah, that guy.
0: Yeah, that guy. That, that's the kind of medical care these guys usually got. Uh, when they they won their first game in grand fashion, smashing Yugoslavia 7-0. Ooh,
1: that's the high score for football.
0: Yeah, although that wasn't the biggest upset or the biggest point spread. The highest score was Switzerland, who won 9-0 versus Lithuania. And the biggest upset was when Sweden won 8-0 versus reigning Olympic champion Belgium. Another upset came in the second round. Egypt had a bye in the first round and progressed to the quarterfinals after beating Hungary 3-0. Which is not expected.
1: Okay.
0: (laughs) Uh, The U.S. even made it past the first round, beating Estonia 1-0 before losing to Uruguay 3-0 in a second. But the Uruguayans brought something other than just goals. One guy, Pedro Patron, would score seven goals throughout the tournament by himself, which is more than entire teams put together managed to do. They brought a style and level of technical skill to the game that bl- just blew the spectators and press away. And we have an excerpt from the game's page 122. What are we looking at here?
1: The most dangerous games.
0: Is it four? Yes, it's over here. There. No, that's not a four. Yeah, down here is the exit I want you to read.
1: <laughs> Gabriel Hanna, is that do we know who that is? Let's see. We don't know who no, he, it is. No, he's a, he's a journalist. But we know that they were dazzled. Yes. Writing after they had beaten Switzerland in the final, 3 to nothing. Quote, The Uruguayans are supple disciples of the spirit of fitness rather than geometry. They have pushed towards perfection, the art of the faint and swerve and dodds. But they also know how to play quick and direct. They created a beautiful football. Before these fine athletes, who are to the English professionals like Arab thoroughbreds next to farm horses, the Swiss were disconcerted.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I feel like
1: somebody should be insulted by that write-up, but I'm not really sure who.
0: And the other one here, the the Spanish newspaper Gazeta dello Sport wrote of their musical phrasing and stylistic perfection. Uh, Enrique. Casalaj wrote I did not ex- suspect that football could be brought to this degree of virtuosity they were playing chess with their feet <laughs> so um, let me see the Uruguayans reached the final against Switzerland and played in front of 60,000 spectators with another 10,000 outside, spectator- outside the stadium they won 3 to nothing. Pedro Patron the high scorer we mentioned earlier was only 18 years old his birthday was two days after the tournament ended. <laughs> and but That was a great party. He is still the youngest male soccer play, soccer Olympic gold medalist. The lap that the winning team takes after the end of the game, sometimes called the Olympic turn or the lap of honor, was invented by the Uruguayans as they wanted to salute their appreciative audience. Also, because this tournament happened before the World Cup existed, FIFA counts it as a World Cup win, which is why Uruguay has four stars on their World Cup jerseys. Hmm. Um, and there's like, the whoever won in 1928
1: has the same thing. Sure, I mean, we'll give it to them. They won a bunch of football,
0: so... And it was a FIFA run tournament before World Cup. Oh, right, 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 right. So, there's some crazy stories from, uh, 1924. <laughs> uh, uh, 1924, tennis. Uh, first...
1: Did it, anyone get shot?
0: No, we got shot in test. We already passed the shot. The guy Just who got shot one? won a gold. He scored a perfect score in shooting after getting shot in the foot.
1: You don't need to shoot with your foot.
0: You need to have a a good stance to shoot. Apparently, you don't. He managed to have demonstrably one. Demonstrably, getting can- <laughs> shut. No, he had one anyway. Like anyway, um, tennis. Nineteen twenty four. First, it was the debut of Chinese Olympians, with four athletes from the Republic of China entering the men's competition. All of them withdrew before the tournament, and I don't know why. But that was the first time Chinese athletes attended the games and participated in the opening ceremonies.
1: We've accomplished our goal. We've been in the ceremony. It's
0: let's, time to go home. Let's go. Uh, 27 countries sent 124 athletes to the tournament to compete in five events. Men's singles, men's doubles, women's singles, women's doubles, which they hadn't done before, and mixed doubles. The tournament took place over a week of competition from July 13th to July 21st. This was another event where the Americans did exceptionally well. They swept all five gold medals. The French were expecting to do better even though they came in second in the medal race with four total, three silver and one bronze. Great Britain won three medals, and Italy and the Netherlands won one each. The French press was was bitter over the American triumph, publishing headlines like America First, the Rest Nowhere.
1: That sounds like an American headline.
0: But the most interesting story out of the tennis tournament, and one of the most unlikely gold medalists ever, was Richard Norris Williams, a.k.a. R. Norris Williams, a.k.a. Dick Williams, Williams was born in Geneva, Switzerland in 1891. His father, Charles Duane Williams, was a direct descendant of Benjamin Franklin. Mm. Williams enjoyed a privileged upbringing, attending boarding school in Switzerland, and was fluent in French and German. He began playing tennis at 12 years old. He was mainly coached by his father. He won the Swiss championship in 1911 at the age of 20. A year later, while traveling first class to America, Williams and his father boarded the RMS Titanic.
1: heard of that. There was a movie about it.
0: Yes. For the rest of this, we're just going to read directly from the Wikipedia entry. Uh, Williams also gained fame as being a survivor of the RMS Titanic disaster in April 1912. He and his father, Charles Duane Williams, were traveling first class on the liner when it struck an iceberg and sank. Shortly after the collision, Williams freed a trapped passenger from a cabin by breaking down a door. He was reprimanded by a steward who threatened to fine him for damaging White Star Line property.
1: Great. You (laughs) took a story about the Titanic and made it even more aggravating and depressing.
0: Uh, This is an event that inspired a scene in James Cameron's film. Uh, Williams remained on the doomed liner almost until the very end. At one point, Williams' father tried to get a steward to fill his flask, The flask was given to Williams and remains in the Williams' family. After being washed overboard by a wave that also took off Colonel Archibald Gracie and and 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller, along with several others, the 21-year-old Williams made his way to the partially submerged collapsible A, holding onto the side... quite a while before getting in when Williams entered the water he was wearing a fur coat which he quickly discarded along with his shoes those in collapsible A who survived were transferred to lifeboat 14 by 5th officer Harold Lowe although abandoned by RMS Carpathia collapsible A was recovered a month later uh, they pulled everybody out of the ship and just left the boat and left it um on board the lifeboat was the discarded fur coat, which was returned to Williams by White Star. <laughs> so uh, we have an excerpt about this on page sixty-nine, which I think is nice. here. Yeah, here it is.
1: Um, Wouldn't a fur coat sink after being waterlogged?
0: Uh, apparently, well, he took it off in the boat. Oh, I see. Here we go.
1: He later described his ordeal, I was not underwater very long, and as soon as I came to the top, I threw off the big fur coat. I also threw off my shoes. About 20 yards away, I saw something floating. I swam to it and found it to be the collapsible boat. I hung on to it and after a while got aboard and stood up in the middle of it. The The water was up to my waist. About 30 of us clung to it. When Officer Lowe's boat picked us up, 11 of us were still alive and the rest were dead from gold. It's a very matter-of-fact way to describe a tragedy, but okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know when this... I don't know when that interview was. He has another quote later that I want to have, but not yet. When entering the lifeboat, he spent several hours knee-deep in the freezing water. Carpathia arrived on the scene to rescue survivors. His father was lost in the disaster. The ordeal left his legs so severely frostbitten that the Carpathia's doctor wanted to amputate them. Williams who did not want his tennis career to be cut short, opted instead to work through the injury by simply getting up and walking around every two hours around the clock.
1: If that's an option, why would... Like, that seems way better than amputation.
0: Um, it's not always an option. Is,
1: okay, but, like, who is this doctor? Like, uh, we should get rid his of these doctor legs? Was that's fair. There's is, a lot of people, and it's... <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, it's fair. Um this choice worked out well for him later that year he won his first u.s tennis championship in mixed doubles and went on to win many more championships including the davis cup with fellow fellow survivor carl (laughs) Baer. it was not until the publication of a night to remember in 1955 a book about the titanic disaster that williams became acquainted with its author walter lord in 1962 williams met with lord and gave a detailed account of the sinking Although it had been report- has been reported that his father, among others, was crushed by the falling forward smokestack and that he barely escaped that fate, Williams does not mention that in his talk with Lord. Which doesn't mean that's not how it happened, it's just that he didn't right. want to talk about what happened to his dad. Right. After surviving the sinking of the Titanic, Williams enlisted in the United States Army during World War I and was awarded the Croix de Guerre and the Legion of Honor. After the war, he resumed his tennis career, which is what led to him... Uh, which what led him to the 1924 games he didn't make it too far in the singles competition singles was never his strong suit due to his habit of always hitting the ball as hard as possible and always trying to hit the winners to the lines when he was so
1: this guy plays tennis the way I play Mario Kart
0: yeah he, he's a very aggressive player when he was on he was considered unbeatable but any sort of cracks in his game meant that he could get knocked out
1: right
0: his strength was always in doubles somebody could basically somebody could
1: cover for him yeah
0: while he was like being real aggressive they kind of covered the Blank. but however, an injury nearly did him in for the mixed doubles in Paris. In the semifinals he sprained his ankle so badly that he wanted to withdraw. But his partner, Hazel Whiteman, was not to be denied her chance at glory and talked him out of it. And he has a pretty great quote about this. It's right here. Is this real short? She
1: told me to stay at the net, said Williams, and she'd cover everything else. I didn't move much. The plan worked. <laughs>
0: They won 6-2 and 6-3 and didn't have to play a third set to win the medal, something that was great relief to Williams. (laughs) He retired from tennis in 1935 at the age of 44 and was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 1957. He was also a successful investment banker, president of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and died of emphysema in 1968 at the age of 77.
1: A successful investment banker who didn't commit securities fraud. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: Silkworth, cough, cough. (laughs) Okay. We're going to wrap up there for the night. We're going to finish with the aquatics next time, as well as get into all of the uh, track and field. This already has gone pretty long.
1: Track and field is another... Worth its own entire section.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Track and Field covers a lot of different events. That's fair. (laughs) Like, it's not... So, um, there's a lot of subsections there. And a lot of uh, crazy stories coming out of it.
1: Did anyone get shot?
0: Nobody got shot. We already got past... Nobody's... No more getting shot.
1: Did anyone get shot put?
0: Uh, Somebody uh, got a major head wound. (laughs) Running competitions. So, Uh,
1: actually worse than the shooting injury. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think it actually was worse than the shot in the foot. Um, and, yeah, so thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time, like I said, with the, the men swimming and uh, track and field. Remember to like, rate, subscribe, and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us. And find us on Twitter, at Olympic Size Cast, where I'll be posting some of these uh, newsreel footage. The pieces. first
1: video element of our podcast. Yes, Many first... more to come.
0: Yeah, uh, no audio on those. <laughs> Because uh, the mm-hmm. IOC chooses very strange. I mean, go ahead if and listen to it. If it's public
1: domain, yes. you want me to recut it with something else and put it back up on the. I YouTube? mean, if you
0: want, I'm pretty sure these are public domain by now. It's footage from 1924. Yeah. Um, email us at OlympicSizePodcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback. And uh, we'll hear you next time.